Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanities, and it is me flying solo this week. Uh, Josh, unfortunately, is scheduling uh, just did not work out with mine, and so I'm going to be flying solo on this one, but that's all right. This is a really exciting card for us to talk about, and very timely, too, because Ronda Rousey is back <laughs> in uh, in WWE. Uh, as I record this, this is the night after the Royal Rumble, and Ronda, uh, as had been heavily rumored, made her appearance and won the Royal Rumble, the ladies match, and she is now going to go on and likely face, I guess it sounds like Charlotte Flair at WrestleMania. Uh, not, not Still not a big fan of the fans. Uh, she gave an interview afterwards. It was basically essentially said, I'm not going to be taken in this time by the big reaction that I get. She had a lot of issues with fans after her last run, said she really enjoyed wrestling and, and being, you know, the girls and all that stuff. But just talked about how ungrateful the fans were, weren't used some expletives and that sort of thing, and seems to still feel that way. But uh, ironically, she makes her appearance on the same weekend that we are releasing this episode where she main evented her first uh, MMA card, and she fought Misha Tate for the Strikeforce Women's Bantamweight title. So we're going to walk through that. Before we get to that, I want to welcome all our listeners to Inside the Hexagon. It's a show about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. We are in the first quarter of 2012 in terms of the uh, you know the, the the timeline of Strike Force. So we're getting towards the end. Uh, in fact, uh, we've only got a handful of events left to cover. Although we do have some more episodes, we've got about eight more episodes scheduled after this one. So. Uh, we've still got a couple months left, but yeah, we're, we're getting to the end of our run as well because Strike Force, when Strike Force is done, uh, we're pretty much done. But uh, on the show today, we'll be discussing Tate versus Rousey, which took place on March 3rd, 2012 at the Nationwide Arena in Columbus, Ohio. Again, in the main event, as I mentioned, we would see Misha Tate defend her Strike Force Women's Bantamweight title against the rising challenger of Ronda Rousey in an absolute grudge match between the two ladies. In the co-main event, we'd see former lightweight champ Josh Thompson return from a 15-month layoff due to injury to take on the tough and talented KJ Noons. In addition, Paul Semtex Daly would take on longtime Pride veteran Kazuo Misaki and former middleweight champ Shakari Suzu would tank with Bristol Marunde. And then finally, Scott Hands of Steel Smith would look to right the ship against the heavy-handed Lumumba Sayers. I want to mention that Inside the Hescon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out their other shows at evergreenpodcast.com. All right. Fallout from Rockhold versus Jardine, which was the last Strike Force event before this one. We had saw we'd seen a good card there. Uh, Luke Rockhold defended his middleweight crown for the first time in a dominant win over uh, Keith Jardine. In addition, we would see uh, King Mo Lawal absolutely destroy the undersized Lorenz Larkin, though Mo would unfortunately test positive for a steroid after that bout and be suspended. And actually, that would end his time with Strike Force. If you haven't already, make sure you check out our last episode, which included my interview with King Mo, and he talks about that fight with Larkin. It's very interesting, so make sure you check that out if you haven't already. We also, on this card, saw Robbie Lawler return to his winning ways and get a big win over Adlan Agamov, and then Tyron Woodley cemented his status as a welterweight contender with a decision win over Jordan Meehan. All right, heading into Tate versus Rousey, there were a bunch of changes to the original plans of this card due to injury. Let's run through them. So the event was originally supposed to feature the finals of the Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix between Josh Barnett and Daniel Cormier, but Cormier, unfortunately, was still dealing with a hand injury, so they went with Tate Rousey instead. 
Also, Gegard Musassi was supposed to take on Mike Kyle in a light heavyweight bout. However, Kyle got injured and the bout was rescheduled for a future Strike Force event. And then also expected for this card, we were supposed to see Jacques Ray Souza and Derek Brunson, who was undefeated at this point. But the Ohio, excuse me, the Ohio State Athletic Commission denied Brunson's fight license due to a bad eye exam. Apparently, he had really severely impaired vision at the time. I don't know what shook out of that because he would end up coming back to fight, obviously. So. Not sure what the problem was there, but regardless, instead, Bristol Marunde would make his strike force debut as a replacement on just a week's notice in a very tough test against the former middleweight champ in Jacques Array. All right, once again, Strikeforce was back in Columbus, Ohio, as part of the Arnold Classic. They had a good relationship there, and I think it was a smart idea to kind of co-promote and co-brand with that. Rousey versus Tate, again, March 3rd, 2012, the nation, Nationwide Arena. The attendance numbers, unfortunately, were not available for this, so we don't know how many people were there. Uh, Showtime drew an average of 472,000 viewers with a peak of 604,000, which was somewhat up from what they'd been doing, but still a far cry uh, from uh, anything that the UFC was doing at this point. Uh, we had Mara Ranallo, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich back on commentary. Uh, and man, what an opening video package this event featured. You can find this on UFC Fight Pass, but Ronda and Misha were dressed to the nines, all gussied up, while Mora Ranallo's voiceover discussed their respective rise to stardom. And uh, man, it was it was pretty cool. Eventually, they were shown in their fight gear. They were staring at one another from flat platforms before coming face-to-face, which was pretty cool. I, I got to say, those kind of video packages, I remember always remember the Tito and Chuck one, I think, from their first fight. And I'm like, these guys like hate each other, right? And yet, they're still going nose-to-nose and face-to-face for you know these video packages and i'm like man how do they i I guess that's just being a professional but or maybe it's all just a work but anyways uh, i thought that was kind of kind of interesting and it was a cool video package and then they transitioned to the strike force you know the the typical strike force uh, uh, introduction package and there were several fighters in there that were no longer with strike force including fedor who was featured pretty prominently uh kind of a sloppy and bad look in my my opinion but you know, it is what it is. Uh, and then there's one more note to get to before we jump into this. But Dana White had been getting more involved with Strike Force prior to this card. But uh, right before this, he was asked a question about Strike Force, and there were starting to be rumors that the promotion might not last super long. And, you know, obviously, they, as we've discussed on previous ep- episodes, they had cut back on the amount of events and just, you know, a lot of their marquee talent was going over to the UFC. So how much longer was the promotion going to last? And Dana. When asked, responded, said, I'm done with that promotion. Essentially, he had recommended a bunch of changes to the folks over at Showtime who shot them all down. He already had a strained relationship with them. So he essentially said, you know what? I'm, I'm out of the strike force business. You know, Zufa owns it and y'all can do what you want, but I'm done. And uh, yeah, you know, whenever the boss is no longer on board with you as a, you know, an entity, uh, I think you can see the writing on the wall. But Yeah. <clears throat> All right, let's get to the undercard. At 155 pounds, the son of Randy, the natural couture, the UFC legend and Hall of Famer who was in attendance for this, Ryan Couture, he defeated Connor Hune, who at one time was uh, really considered as a, a real rising star in MMA, knocked him out via TKO, come by way of punches at 252 of the third round. At 170 pounds, Roger Bowling defeated Brandon Sailing via TKO, come by way of punches at, at 115 of the second round. I should mention quickly, Scott Coker and Strikeforce probably breathed a sigh of relief with this 
this one as Brandon Sailing had been discovered shortly before this card uh, to have had a, a prison record, which, you know, that, I mean, uh, you know, I there's plenty of fighters out there that was some sort of record, but this uh, this gentleman, Brandon Sailing, also apparently had ties to a neo-Nazi organization, which drew some bad press for the promotion. So their uh, Coker and company were probably happy that bowling had dispatched of, of Sailing. Uh, and then at 155 pounds, the always tough Pat Healy defeated Karis Fodor via submission, come by way of arm triangle at 335 of the third round, so close to the end of the fight. And then in the kind of main event of the undercard, Sarah Kaufman defeated Alexis Davis via majority decision in a bantamweight bout. And from all indications, this was a tremendous fight. They talked about it a bit on the main card. Uh, and uh, it really proved that Kaufman, who'd gotten her hand raised, should be next for whoever won in the main event, whoever took the belt home. And we'll talk more about that as we get to the main event. But here we go, kicking off the main card at 185 pounds. Ronaldo, Ronaldo Jacare Souza took on Bristol Marunde, and Jacare he was 14 and three coming in, and was of course a former Strikeforce middleweight champion. Uh, this was his first bout since losing the belt to Luke Rockhold, and he apparently had been frustrated by his lack of activity. Uh, the five-time BJJ world champion definitely felt like he had something to prove to the Zufa Brass. And again, originally this was supposed to be a fight with Derek Brunson, but he was unable to pass his medicals due to that aforementioned eye issue. Instead, Jacare would face Bristol Marunde, who was 15 and 6 coming in. Although I will mention uh, there is, uh, <clears throat> I use tapology.com for uh, the records because it, it's a very, very well respected uh, fighter database. And I use it for a lot of my research. And according to that, he was 12, uh, Bermunde was either 12 and 6 or 12 and 7 coming in. So there was some question about where the 15 and 6 record came from. Perhaps uh, the promotion, which had done so in the past, uh, look at uh, just see Caesar Gracie, uh, had pumped up uh, Bermunde's record a little bit in order to get him licensed. I'm not sure. But regardless, he had won four straight and nine of his last 10 overall. And he was a, a veteran of the IFL. So he definitely had. Uh, you know, proved that he could be a fighter and he was making a strike force debut. And interestingly, Marunde was also a fight promoter and his promotion was putting on an event on the very same night as this card. So I'm sure he had a lot on his mind uh, heading into the cage. But once the bell rang, kind of a slow start. Jacare was able to get Marunde's back uh, with his hooks in pretty quick, though. And Jacare got a warning after he headbutted Marunde kind of inexplicably in the left shoulder blade, which was a weird technique to see. And then the Brazilian hit Marunde with what with what appeared to be shots to the back of the head, which caused the ref to stop things and give him a warning. Uh, I believe it was Frank Shamrock. It might have been Militich that said on commentary on the replay that he didn't really see punches to the back of the head. But regardless, they were back on their feet. Jacare showed his power when he dropped Marunde with a really nice overhand right uh, and then Marunde shot in in response to that Jacare tried to get the guillotine uh, Marunde survived but he really offered little in this first round 10-9 Jacare then in the second Marunde landed a nice shot early on uh, uh, but Jacare landed a really cool spinning back kick that landed flush to the face which reminded me of Kung Lee it drew a big reaction from the crowd the former champ then did a really cool move that I don't think I've ever seen before he actually apparently had done it twice but I didn't catch it the first time uh, essentially he was trying to get Marunde's back from the standing position and he did kind of like like the Showtime cage walk uh, where he you know kicked Benson Henderson in the mouth he did 
kind of something like that and pushed off with his foot off the cage and spun Morinde to the mat from that, which is really smooth. Uh, although Morinde was able to scramble, get back to his feet quickly, but it definitely looked very cool. Uh, Jacare was just, he was doing a really nice job of switching up his strikes, throwing a lot of power punches and really solid kicks. And you could see his progression as a striker, his confidence was growing. And then later in the round, Jacare got a really solid takedown, further cementing himself as handily winning this fight, another 10-9 round for the former champ. At the beginning of the third, very quick takedown by Jacare, and he quickly got to half guard. Marune was trying to control the wrist, but he was pinned against the cage, just eating right hands and, and just overall just getting beat up. Uh, to his credit, he was able to stand up, but he got taken down immediately, and that was the beginning of the end as the Brazilian quickly snatched an arm triangle choke. And Marunde was forced to tap out, just a an absolute dominant, dominant win for Jacare, which, uh, you know, to be fair, uh, Marunde is, you know, not at the same level as Jacare as a fighter, and Marunde was also taking the fight on a week's notice. So uh, you got to give him a ton of credit for being able to last halfway through the third round but the official uh, ending was Jacare Souza defeating Bristol Marunde via submission come by way of arm triangle choke at 243 of the third round Jacare would be, at, be would be back excuse me later in the year to take on Derek Brunson while this would be it for Marunde in strike force he would be a, a notable competitor on the ultimate fighter season 16 and we get one official fight in the UFC which was a loss and he retired in 2015 with a 16 and 10 record although again that record is uh, that's according to um excuse me according to topology uh so if it was basically what strike force had said i think it would be more like a 20 and 10 record but just not totally certain there all right our next fight 185 pounds once again scott hands of steel smith versus lumumba sayers smith was 17 and 9 coming in he had been on a really rough stretch he had lost four of his last five and three straight overall and only an absolute miracle comeback against Kung Lee had prevented Smith Smith from being on a five fight losing streak. I mean, if you don't recall the miracle in San Jose, uh, Smith had just been getting beat up the entire fight and then he caught Lee and that's how he ended up winning. And so really, you know, yes, he won that, but he, he had, mostly lost for five straight fights if you want to put it that way uh he had gone to welterweight for a two-fight stint uh but now he was back at middleweight and in, in, in a pre-fight interview he'd stated that his welterweight training camps just had not gone that well he was more focused on the weight cut than he was really improving and training as a fighter uh he also recognized that this was a do or die type of fight and that uh you know a, a by saying that Sayers would not be the one ending his career he was acknowledging that that he was you know on a, a last run here if he couldn't right the ship uh for Sayers former tough man competitor he was five and two decorated wrestler known for having really heavy hands win or lose at this point he had never been out of the first round um, he had been submitted by Derek Brunson in his strike force debut, but then it turned heads when he nearly decapitated Antoine Britt on the very last challenger show and this was his chance to really make a big splash on the big card. All right, once the bell rang, Sayers looked looser and quicker on his feet to start off and used that to get in deep and got a very solid takedown, easily sinking in the hooks. He decided to just stand there uh, and then uh, stand up, excuse me, and then he tagged Smith with a couple shots as he was stepping away from him. Sayers then grabbed the leg and lifted Smith up, and he stood there. It was actually pretty cool. Uh, it looked like he was kind of deciding what he wanted to do, and he essentially performed kind of an overhead suplex kind of Samoan drop type move, uh, which drew a big reaction from the crowd. Smith tried to grab a, grab a guillotine, but Sayers was already across the body in top position, so he was safe, and instead he grabbed his own 
guillotine and squeezed as much as he could. And Smith tapped out actually so aggressively. It looked like he was kind of trying to punch Sayers in the gut, but that was it. Really great performance by Sayers and, but really sad to see Smith. I mean, he was just done as a relevant fighter truly. And so the official uh, finish was, was Lumumba Sayers de- defeating Scott Smith via submission come by way of guillotine at 134 of the first round. Sayers would be back in strike force to take on Anthony Smith. And that, but this would be it for hands of steel. Frank Shamrock mentioned during the post fight replays that this might be the last time we see Scott Smith in a strike force cage. And he was right. He would t- fight twice more in MMA winning one and losing one to end his career at 18 and 11. And I've got to say, Josh was uh, uh, Josh is a much bigger fan of Scott Smith than I was, but I really have fond memories of him. Uh, his fight with Benji Raddick was fantastic. Obviously, I, you know, very rarely in a boring fight, even when he lost, he was entertaining and just a humble warrior that always laid it all on the line. And I appreciated him coming on the podcast. Uh, he, he was really open with us and seems to be in a really good place in his life. And so I appreciate that and all the respect in the world to a guy like Scott Hans of Steel Smith. All right, and then in our next bout at 170 pounds, a former opponent of Scott Smith, Paul Semtex Daly, would take on Kazuo Misaki. Daly, 29-11-2, coming in, was on a modest two-fight win streak in smaller shows, which had come after losses to Nick Diaz and Tyron Woodley. In strike force, still one of the most dangerous welterweights in the world, Semtex had made it clear in pre-fight interviews that he was tired of leaving it in the judges' hands, even intimating that there was some bias against him. So he was coming for the KO, and he was talking about essentially that uh, even Showtime had it in for him, which doesn't really make a lot of sense that, uh, yeah, it just, it was kind of crazy. And he said, essentially like you hear in other parts of the world, like he used the example of going to Germany and, Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to be a, a wrestler in Germany, like a, like a amateur wrestler style. Cause you'll lose. They, you know, they look for strike, like stuff like that, which in retrospect sounds kind of petty and kind of, you know, crying over spilled milk. But regardless, it, it, you know, it seemed to motivate Daly. He said he was coming for the KO. Uh, but the, And this would be the welterweight debut for longtime middleweight competitor Kazuo Masaki, a longtime Pride veteran. I remember watching him several times in Pride. He was 24-11-2, and two, uh, which included a win over Joe Riggs of the Playboy Mansion in his Strike Force debut, as well as decision victories in Pride over Dennis Kang, Dan Henderson, and Phil Baroni. He'd won two straight was definitely not someone that Daly should overlook. But a really impressive opening round for Misaki, who I think many were expecting to get knocked out here. Uh, Misaki was not only holding his own on the feet, but I'd say he was pushing the pace and actually winning. I think Daly recognized this as he actually went for a takedown of his own, which we rarely saw from Paul Daly, but he got him. Uh, Misaki was uh, for you know fortunate for him, was able to reverse as the bell rang, but pretty clear 10-9 round for the Japanese fighter. The commentators pointed out early on in the middle frame that Misaki is really hard to finish as in those 11 losses, he'd only been stopped once during his career. And Daly was a bit more aggressive early on, but Misaki was still the one doing the damage on the feet. And he was also winning the grappling portion of the bout. And Daly likely, again, sensing he needed to switch things up, got another takedown, though Misaki was able to, uh, Misaki, excuse me, was able to neutralize the advantage with his own positioning from the bottom. And after a really nice hip escape, Misaki reversed and took top position, putting Daly where he definitely didn't want to be on his back. Another solid round for Kazuo Misaki, who was up 2-1, or excuse me, up uh, 2-0 in my eyes. 
And then Semtex, I mean, he just seemed gun shy. I, 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 I don't know what was going on, but after trading, uh, th- trading to start things off in the final round, the Brit took Masaki down once again. And daily, he did land a really nice left elbow strike. And Masaki, I mean, <clears throat> to say that a, a river or a fountain of blood started coming out from the side of his left eyebrow would be understating it. I mean, he was, it looked like he was hemorrhaging. And the rest stopped it for a, a doctor to take a look and, you could hear an audible gasp from the crowd as the camera caught a shot of the divot to the side of Masaki's left eye. And, you know, but at the same time, it was not over his eyes, so Masaki's vision wouldn't be directly affected. So the doctor allowed it to continue. But despite the damage being done, uh, especially with that cut, Daly was relegated to one punch strikes for the most of the remainder of the fight. No combinations. He didn't really go after a very bloody Masaki. And, I mean, he did get another takedown. Masaki got right back up. Daly just appeared to be mentally broken. He needed a knockout, but he was not going for it. Masaki was the aggressor, and though he definitely lost the third round, he'd clearly won the fight. Now, the interesting thing was that Daly seemed to be acting like he'd won the fight, uh, and, and and when the scores were announced, Daly reacted, reacted in disbelief and anger. I mean, he did shake hands with Masaki, but Semtex was clearly peeved at the judge's decision, which was via split decision to be fair. But uh, one of the one of the judges scored at 30-27 for Masaki and Daly just reacted like someone had, you know, insulted his mother. I mean, he was really upset. I think that he thought, I mean, obviously he thought that he won the fight, but I think he thought those takedowns were going to win the fight for him. But if you take somebody down, but you get, you know, they keep getting up or you're not really able to do anything with it. I mean, I, I don't think that's going to score a lot in the judge's eyes. But regardless, this would be the last fight in Strike Force for both these guys and the last fight of Misaki's career. Surprisingly, at only 35 years old, he would retire from the sport with a 25-11 and 2 record. So obviously a lot of fights, uh, and, and he probably had been training for years before that. But yeah, they're only 35 years old. He was done. Uh, Daily, for his part, he's still competing today in Bellator at the age of 38. Holds an impressive 43-18 and 2 record. He has wins over Derek Brunson, Scott Smith, Jorge Masvidal, Martin Campman, and Dwayne Beg Ludwig with a couple of those wins coming in strike force. So hats off to Daly. Uh, one of my favorite guys to, to watch. He's always always entertaining in my eyes. Uh, and, and much respect to him for still competing and, and still, you know, 38, man. You know, he could go for an, another couple of years, it sounds like, but I believe that he's talked about uh, wrapping things up. And when you've got, was it 43 plus 20, 50, 63 pro fights on your record in MMA, and that's not including uh, some kickboxing as well, you know, he's got a lot of miles on that body for sure. All right, this brings us to the co-main event at 155 pounds, Josh the Punk Thompson taking on KJ Nunes. This was Thompson's first fight in 14, 15 months as he'd been dealing with injuries. Still, the former champ held a 19-4 and record, and he had won two of his last three. He really needed a win here to get to a, a championship trilogy for the Strikeforce lightweight belt with Gilbert Melendez. So there was a lot riding on this fight. Conversely, Nunes had lost two of his last three, though he was coming off a decision win over Billy Evangelista. He was 11 and four. He'd previously gone down in defeat to Nick Diaz and Jorge Masvidal in strike force. So he really wanted to get a win here, especially over a former champ to get back into title contention. Well, this would be a very interesting bout as these two were friends outside of the cage, uh, but that didn't seem to matter. Once they got in there, lightweight champ Gilbert Melendez joined the commentary team for this one, which made a lot of sense. Big smiles from Josh right away. He was clearly happy to be back in the cage. The punk landed a sweet switch kick early on and we were off to the races he got a takedown not long after and kept noons neutralized for the remainder of the round. Honestly, not very, not terribly exciting, but 10-9 for Thompson. 
Thompson got another takedown early on in the second, though Nunes was able to fight back up. But the punk just took him back, uh, took him back down again, much to the chagrin of the crowd. The ref stood things up, and Nunes tried to do some damage on the feet, but Thompson took him down again. He just was not – he wasn't going to be winning many new fans, but he was not going to allow Nunes to do what he did best, which was strike on the feet. He was dominating, and he actually did bloody up Nunes. Nunes was bleeding pretty well from the left eye. Another 10-9 round for Thompson. And then a trip takedown early on in the third. Thompson turned that into a very, very tight arm triangle choke, one of the tightest arm triangle chokes I've ever seen that didn't produce a tap. But Nunes was able to survive. His head was turning very red. He seemed to be panicking right before he got out of it. And both Frank Shamrock and Pat Militich on commentary were saying that Nunes was not defending correctly. He was trying to push his arm down instead of doing the uh, answer the phone arm method that you're supposed to do. And it, it just, yeah, he was grimacing at times, even after getting out of it. It might have been the blood coming out of his eye or coming into his eye. But Nunes seemed to be in pain. He was un unable to do much with Thompson on top of him and I mean, it was clearly a pretty safe strategy for, for Josh Thompson. He risked very little in this bout, but it was enough, and he dominated his way to a decision victory, and that was the official uh, the official result. Josh Thompson defeated KJ Nunes via unanimous decision. Thompson was not happy with his performance, using an expletive to describe it on the, the mic uh, when asked by Moral Renal in the cage via interview afterwards. Said he had contracted staff and training, wanted to try something different in this fight. But so all these things that kind of contributed to his performance, but he was not happy with how he performed. But he said he was ready for Gilbert and he wanted that fight next. Uh, it was interesting to note that Thompson was wearing an anti-Obama shirt in the cage instead of hope. It said nope. Uh, and this was 2012. I believe Obama was running for reelection at that point. So kind of interesting. But with this win, Thompson would get that trilogy fight with uh, with Gilbert Melendez. And I am very much looking forward to covering that one. Nunes would also be back in strike force and he would be taking on Ryan Couture in a very interesting bout as well. All right, but this brings us to the main event at 135 pounds. Misha Tate was defending her Strike Force Women's Bantamweight title against Ronda Rousey. The champ, Misha Tate, was 12 and 2 coming in. It had won six straight, which included her championship win over Marluz Kunin. She'd really established herself as a star with her title win, and now she was in her first full blown feud. Rousey was undefeated at only 4-0. She had submitted all four of her opponents in less than two minutes total of cage time, which is pretty amazing. None of her fights had gone longer, had gone a minute, which is crazy. Uh, but when you combined her good looks and persona with her Olympic bronze medal in judo, as well as her submission wins, being able to talk and talk trash like she could, she'd been able to jump the line and get this title shot. Surprisingly, at the time, Rousey was favored coming into this fight. And if anything, it deepened the feud between her and Tate. These two just did not like each other at all. In fact, the champ took it further. She said, quote, she kind of talked herself into a title fight. I'm going to be very excited to send her back to where she belongs, the back of the line. Not only am I not a fan, I cannot stand the girl. She's full of it. I think she runs her mouth way too much. She says things that just make her look absolutely ridiculous, and I think she gives women's MMA a bad name. I don't think she's a good representation or a role or a good role model for the sport, period. Not only do I not like her, but I don't respect her at all, end quote. And it's interesting because Rousey said that this was not personal to her, but it was clear, uh, clearly personal for Misha Tate. I also think it irked Tate that uh, Rousey and not Sarah Kaufman was getting this bout as it seemed like the Canadian really deserved it. 
She was a former champ. She had already beaten Tate before. She had won both their fights since losing the title. Uh, and in a pre-fight interview, Kaufman tried to be gracious in getting passed over for the title so- shot. But she was also said that she was she also said that she was angry and wanted her title back. And now that she'd won her bout against Alexis Davis earlier in the evening, it was clear Kaufman had to be next for whoever took the belt home. But once the uh, once we got to the fight itself, big reaction from the crowd for Ronda Rousey, who came out to bad reputation, which, again, if you watched the Royal Rumble uh, for 2022, then you heard bad reputation once again as her entrance song in WWE. Uh, Tate came out swinging right away, closing her eyes and just winging punches. That was something early on uh, with with Tate that always stood out to me was that I mean, she was a wrestler. Take down Tate. I mean, that was her take down Tate. That was her nickname. Uh, You know, she just. She she had some power, but she was not a great striker from a technical perspective, and that was definitely on display early on. Uh, but she ended up clinching and trying for a trip takedown, but Rousey was able to use her judo and flip the champ over to her back, which was a, just a strategic mistake for Tate for sure. After some positioning, the challenger fell to her back with a straight arm bar in tight, and it looked like Tate's elbow had dislocated, but she was able to withstand and get back up, taking top position. Rousey stood, and Tate took her back, but we were already and we were already past Rousey's longest fight to date. Rousey stood again, but Tate held on, trying to sink in a rear naked choke. Rousey got a nice backdoor escape, and suddenly Tate was on her back with Rousey standing. Eventually, the two were both back on their feet trading once again, and Tate got the better of it. But once they clinched, Rousey grabbed her head and executed a beautiful, smooth judo trip hip toss. It was very cool. Then she took her back and started raining down punches before sinking in another straight arm bar, and this is where it got gross. Rousey was bending Tate's arm this way and that, and essentially the ref stopped the fight as Tate, as you could see it on replay, as Tate was tapping. And I mean, but it was disgusting. Like, it was... It was gross. I, I mean, just I, I, could, I could go the rest of my life without seeing the replay of that submission. Uh, super entertaining fight, you know, big win for Rousey. But the thing that sticks sticks out in my mind is just her, you know, Tate's elbow going back and forth. And it was disgusting. Uh, Rousey actually seemed to be like she might be showing a little bit of concern for Tate. Uh, kind of, you know, just the looks on her face. But Ronda Rousey defeated Misha Tate via technical submission, come by way of armbar to win the Strike Force Women's Bantamweight belt at 427 of the first round. But man, what a performance for Rousey. Just incredible poise, kind of weathered the early storm. It was clear she had a long way to go in terms of striking on her feet, but man, her talent, her supreme confidence. I, I mean, Ronda Rousey was an absolute force to be reckoned with already in her career. And I think this was a part a time in the sport. For women's MMA where Ronda Rousey was just on another level than the other competitors. And, uh, you know, I mean, this was her debut at 135 pounds, by the way. So, uh, you know, they, they obviously had strapped a rocket to, to Ronda and they were planning to ride that thing. I mean, they, it was, this was going to be a huge opportunity for strike force, uh, to really make a big name. And they really gave Ronda a platform and we've talked about this before, but, you know, Ronda was was made in Strike Force, and and that really opened the door for uh, them for for ladies to go over to the UFC because Dana saw Ronda and knew um, that she was you know the one that was going to open the door for them. But really incredible performance from Ronda Rousey. Uh, as far as next steps go, Kaufman would get her title shot against Rousey, while Tate would be back to take on Julie Kedzie. 
But we're getting towards the end of this. Uh, I know this was a, ki- a quick episode. Uh, again, it's uh, you know it's hard to banter when it's just me, but you know it is what it is. Uh, no fighters tested positive for performance enhancers or recreational drugs after this event. Total disclosed fighter payroll of five hundred forty-three thousand five hundred dollars. Ronda Rousey made thirty-two thousand, including a seventy thousand dollar win bonus. Misha Tate got nineteen thousand. Josh Josh Thompson got eighty thousand, which was a flat rate, no win bonus. KJ Noons got thirty-eight. Misaki got fifty or sorry, Misaki got fifty thousand flat rate, no win bonus. Paul Daly got forty-five. Lamumba Sayers got ten, which included a five thousand dollar win bonus. While Scott Smith took home sixty-five, and Jacare Souza got ninety-two, which included a twenty-two thousand dollar win bonus. Bristol Marunde got ten thousand dollars. And again, to remind you. <clears throat> Those, uh, those, uh, those salaries are not necessarily accurate in terms of uh, re- reflecting everything that fighters got. Some fighters, as John Morgan, the crack MMA junkie reporter, explained on a previous episode, sometimes they'd get locker room bonuses and perf- so-called performance fees and appearance fees that would net them more money. So uh, that's not everything, but that's what that's what was released. But to recap. All in all, a pretty entertaining card. Jacare had to be in discussion in the discussion to take on the winner of Luke Rockhold versus Tim Kennedy for the title, which was the next middleweight title bout. While it was clear that Scott Smith was on his last legs, unfortunately, as a fighter, and again, he would only fight a couple more times in MMA. Kazuo Misaki had impressed, while Josh Thompson proved his next fight should be against Gilbert Melendez for the title, and then we had a new signature strike force star in Ronda Rousey. But in our next episode, we're going to be finally covering the finals of the Heavyweight Grand Prix as DC would return to take on Josh Barnett in the co-main event. We'd get the long-awaited trilogy between Melendez and Thompson. In addition, Feijal would be back, the former champ, to take on Mike Kyle, while Chris Spang would take on Nishan Burrell in a battle of up-and-comers. And then after that, I'm really excited to say that both Josh Thompson and Gilbert Melendez have agreed to be on the podcast at the same time to discuss their trilogy. Uh, I'm in process of getting that schedule. We're hoping to get that recorded this week, uh, but I'm really, really excited about that. That is going to be really awesome to have both those gentlemen on. Gilbert was on the podcast early on in our run, but Josh has never been on, so this is going to be great. And again, I am very much looking forward to this. Uh, but anyways, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up here. If you have, uh, if you'd like, you know, you have an idea or you want to get involved with the podcast or anything like that, you can reach out to me at fill it inside the hexagon.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you, especially as we get towards the end of our run as a podcast here. I appreciate all the support, everybody being involved with us. I, I'm so grateful for, for everything. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope you stay safe. You stay healthy. And we will see you soon. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous 
various odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast.